Testing, testing. Podcast, one, podcast, two, two, podcast, 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 podcast. This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by our 10-year anniversary at C4 Comic-Con. Please visit us at our booths and you will receive a free print with the purchase of any book as our way of saying thank you for supporting us low these many years. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Hello, this is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry of Chasing Artwork. Hello. Um, we have recently returned from New York Comic Con. Like, within 12 hours. Yeah, we have returned 12 hours ago from New York Comic Con, and we uh, have lots of things that we'd like to talk about. Um, Justin will go first. <laughs> so just to give you dear listeners an idea of the behind the scenes of the podcast, at least from my end, I just show up to work around nine thirty, ten o'clock. I sit down and we just record what happens. I never have any idea what's going to happen. Usually who the guest is going to be. That's all Gregory's department. He does all the work there. I was going to... Part of the point of doing the podcast was it was it's always been like kind of Gregory's project and I've been happy to let him kind of like do all the work and I just contribute as need be. So there's this thing in education. It's this uh, theory called disequilibrium that if people know they're coming to learn, but they don't know just what it is, they retain it much better than mm -hmm. if they can prepare for it. Surprise right. attack. That Surprise knowledge. attack is a lot better. Um, and so this is like in education, what you're supposed to do, or like the prevailing theory is that you should have 70% of the content of your lesson planned and 30% of that lesson, you should pivot based on the interest of the students. And you should do that sometimes wildly so that there's a surprise, like you say, for them. So I, uh, since I don't have a classroom anymore to surprise, it's you, Justin. I just had a great idea. Surprise. Perfect. Tell okay. me about it. Um, years ago I did, uh, the Gotham Gears. It was robotic redesigns of Batman characters. And I believe it was when I was at, uh, Complex Games as a concept artist, I was working on this and a coworker of mine, uh, I think we both kind of came up with the idea together and I kind of forgot about it. I have it written down in some sketchbook somewhere, but it just kind of came back. A huge, like, Dr. Freeze mechanical golem with his wife, Nora, like, encased on his back in that, like cryogenic tube with like a little Batman like in front because great mashup because you're all about doing big versus small big versus small and then kind of this mechanical like perversion of like what Dr. Freeze has turned into like you know way in the future and then the current Batman and I think we've just stumbled upon kind of standoff the podcast theme today we're going to talk about big versus small today ladies and oh. gentlemen and uh, how on the outside it can seem like there's this giant machine and you're just the little David to the Goliath as you're trying to figure out how to write your story or make your comic or paint your picture or write your novel. Um, and how could you possibly win against it? And in our adventure today, the big was New York Comic Con and the small was two little boys from Manitoba <laughs> trying to make their way in the big city. Scared country mice. 
That's right. Country mice and city mice. So we're going to talk about that. Why don't you give the listeners um, a brief bit of context about your relationship with New York Comic Con? I went to my very first New York Comic Con in 2012. It was when I was kind of first starting out into... uh, I started doing Comic-Cons in 2008, so that was, I guess, three, four years into my experience with Comic-Cons, and I had enough of a portfolio, and I traveled to enough cities that I knew that I could pretty much break even in most situations, and it was worth the risk in a lot of cases. So the only, uh, I had kind of tried my first American show in Chicago, and it went really, really well. So New York was kind of the next biggest show that kept coming up on my Comic-Con radar as the big one. And it was, um, to get into the Artist Alley, it's a juried process. You apply, you send links to your work, and if they, not only if they like your work, but if it fits into kind of their criteria of what they want the portfolio of New York Comic-Con's Artist Alley to look like. So if you, you could be the most amazing anime artist um, out there, but if they already have an entire row of fantastic anime artists, you're not going to make the cut. And the same goes for, you know, if you draw like the Marvel way or if you're kind of a realistic painter, like they kind of have quotas. And once they hit those quotas, that's, you know, you're kind of out of luck. Try again next year. It's not that you're not good enough. It's just that they want to have a varied experience in the, the Comic-Con. So I was able to get in just because I think my stuff uh, has a, a fairly unique style. And uh, I was placed beside like a, a regular Marvel artist, and the next guy like down the row from me was like Ben Templesmith of Mouse Guard. Uh, so I was no, not Mouse Guard. Or sorry, Ben Templesmith does a lot of creative-owned comics, like Welcome to Hawksford, and uh, he did Thirty Days of Night. Most famously. oh, who am I thinking? Uh, the Mouse Guard guy, Pearson, um, something like that. Oh, we're terrible. He wasn't at his table very often. He showed up for Mouse like an hour at a time when the lineup got overwhelming kind of thing he's he was a very nice guy and a very big deal um hold on did you feel here's our david and goliath theme here our big versus small did you feel worthy of your position at that table david David peterson David Peterson. sorry david we love your work yeah but we're bad with names um this i was really worried that yeah like i was not gonna that i was just gonna be overwhelmed by the the talent surrounding me and kind of go unnoticed uh, but it wasn't the case. It was I. I did much much better than the Marvel artist beside me. <gasps> Them's fighting um, words. Yeah, I even had there was people behind me that I kind of had my booth like in these two angles, like this two V, and so you could kind of see my banner from like from behind on the end of the other row, and my neighbor behind me had to ask for me to kind of close it in because like he, people kept asking about it, and he was getting tired of telling them you had to go around yeah Yeah. so it was it was a really overwhelmingly positive response from everybody and the coolest thing has been the amount of people who came up to me this year and told me about how they found me in 2012 in the artist alley and it's been neat to see the progression since growth well that's really cool yeah yes tell us mr scientist where do we go in these fantastic spaceships of yours so i'd only done new york comic-con two years ago i kept telling you to do it yeah you were constantly telling me to get out there but uh, for me it was a question of you know while i was teaching um question of logistics you have to be able to take uh four weekdays off in order to do that and i had very understanding administration that would let me um you know flee at the end of a friday workday maybe before a 
staff meeting or something, but there was no way to get the kind of daytime off that would be required to go and do that. So I would, like many people, just look at it from afar, wondering if one day I will ever deign to be at New York Comic Con. Um, and then I took the leave and decided this was the year we would go to New York Comic Con. Only, if you recall, it was already September, and the New York Comic Con is in October, and New York Comic Con waitlist is very long. Everybody wants to be in Everyone that wants to be there. And so I called the... Um, Mark Fitch. Mark Fitch, I guess, yeah. The He's a show very, very nice guy. Super. Yeah. He was really great. So I got him on the phone, and I was like, I'd like to exhibit at New York Comic Con. Hi. He was like, ha. Ha. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> really good for you. So here are the ways to do that. And I explained that. So I explained my whole story, that I've always wanted to go. I've wanted to go for years. And he kind of didn't, like, you know, to his credit... It could be anybody calling. And so he said, listen, on the off chance that your stuff is something that we haven't seen a lot of and that it's very different than what else is on the floor, there is a possibility because I have a cancellation. And if your stuff is is value added to the show, then maybe we'll talk. Can you please send me a website link or a portfolio link? Didn't he do that while you were on the phone? While I was on the phone. So I said, yes, so you buy a computer, sent him some stuff. Uh, sent him some review article things that we had done for the books and sent him some things. And his first thing was, oh, you, you know, you don't just sell prints, you publish books. I was like, yeah. And he says, oh, and you write books. I was like, yeah. He's like, well, we don't get many people who write and illustrate books. What are they? And he starts clicking through and he says, oh, we also don't, yeah, this is very different. Right. He was very careful not to say whether or not he liked it. <laughs> I got a sense that perhaps it was not his cup of tea. But um, I did also get a sense that he really legitimately felt like this was something that small press didn't have. And he said, if you are willing to take over a small press table, like there's no room in Artist Alley. Like every A-list Marvel artist and DC artist is there already. You know, I'm not bumping one of them for an unknown. But if you're willing to take over a small press, you have enough books that you could probably fill out a small press booth. Would you be interested in taking that over? Um, so the... Uh, uh, corollary of that story is that uh, the artist alley table is much uh, less expensive than a small press table so that was also him separating like if you're really serious about it it's a more expensive space and so I asked him some telling questions I just said and I think this is good for you if you're trying to get into a show dear listener you have to ask about the traffic if it's in the last minute in the breach the table that's available likely is the least desirable table of the show. Um, and I asked him to describe, you know, who my neighbors were, if he had the plan up and he told me who they were. And then I said, who is the, you know, in a hundred meters, who is the closest people in a hundred meters? And he said, Dark Horse and Marvel. And so I knew no matter what, there would at least be traffic. And so I took the plunge. And so that is my story of getting into New York Comic Con the first time two weeks before the show sort of an impossible dream come true i the best part of this story and i i like it when comic cons do this the fact that they don't care about will you pay for the table yes you're in no you're not like it's not about just selling the space they actually want something that'll add to the experience of the comic con and that was my first experience with um mark fitch as well the the second year I, I tried to apply, I didn't make it into Artist Alley in time or like it didn't get through the jury process. So I applied for small press and I hadn't heard back. So eventually I just kind of phoned to find out 
like, am I going or not? Cause I need to figure out the logistics and the exact same conversation happened. He wanted to see my work. And while I was on the phone, he started going through my portfolio and it was the same kind of thing. Like, this is different. We don't have much of this. Like what well, kind of table do you want? Right. So the thing that maybe you can take away from this dear listener is that if you're looking at the roster and you say, you know, I'm nothing like these people, that might be your strength. You know, it takes a little bit of confidence and you know, you can just fake it. You're on the phone. You can just fake some confidence (laughs) even if, because it starts as a no, right? You already aren't in. So phoning up a little bit nervous and asking the worst case scenario is what you already have, which is that you aren't going. But the best case scenario is you might get in. Um, so that's what we did that first year. And so I skipped a year because I was working on a project that I lined up as a result of being there. Yeah, let's talk about how the best thing about New York Comic Con is not the sales numbers, but what you what happens afterwards. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent an entire year doing projects, actually a year and a half, doing projects that I lined up from that first New York Comic Con show I ever went to. I just, you know, it was just card after card and art director after art director. And not all of them, like I followed up on all of them and I would say maybe 10% of them were valuable in the end. But even from that 10%, I ended up with tons of work. The culture of New York Comic Con is that lots of publishers, editors, and talent folks who are looking for publishing IP attend the show and attend it regularly, looking for that. So you're there, or I should say that concentration of artists and writers provides them a ready pool to save them a lot of time in the year looking for talent. Um, Yeah, they're not being sent stuff. They're not being like... Yeah, bombarded by pitches or anything like that, they can kind of go around and decide for themselves. It yeah. must be a nice change of pace that, you know. Yeah, totally. And I mean, <laughs> these were some of them were very small things, like little spot illustrations in books or magazines. Some of them were very strange. Like I, um, I did a short comics project called Codename Colossus to connect to such a cool project yeah connect to a kickstarter project of the same name i'm so jealous of that this big diesel punk remote control robot should have been mine should have been yours (laughs) it was mine you found the first (laughs) it was mine and what a what a just all just a pleasure to work with those it was so way outside the box like not in a million years would i have thought this was something that came out of new york comic-con and then the relationship that i had with c2 that led to working on the baby metal graphic novel which was even more surreal to come back to New York Comic Con this year, be back in small press at the Z2 Comics booth, promoting the book that, you know, wasn't even an idea in my head the last time I was in New York City. So, you know, just dream big, people. <laughs> just dream big. But also follow through. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. I wanted to, while I was walking around... New York Comic Con. I wanted to bring this up in the podcast just because it was something that bothered me seeing it year after year. And it's probably going to sound like a little like pretentious, but undeserved booths, people who didn't deserve the locations and the amount of space they had at that show. There was a couple, a couple of people had premium like corner locations, like a 10 by 20 or just a 10 by 10 in like the main hall in like a high traffic area of, of New York Comic Con that sees between 120 and 160,000 people. And they did not have the amount of work to fill up half a table, let alone what two to What if it's our three. fault though, Justin? What if they listen to our podcast? 
believed in themselves, got in and showed up. I think let's you, you let's need be constructive to, in our criticism I I just, of this. Yeah, it, it bugged me that it was so apparent that they hadn't earned that. And I know how many talented people don't get into this Comic-Con. Like a lot of friends of ours who are incredible artists haven't been able to get into the show for years. And their, their stuff is like a magnitude times better. Right. And it just seemed, I, there's got to be f- like friends, a friend network in, in place here for some of these people. But so it, you're, you're making a nepotism claim. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to point I sound out so that. Bitter. I'm... I would like to point out that the attitudes and opinions presented <laughs> on this co- podcast by Justin Curry do not represent the attitudes or opinions of writer-illustrator Gregory Kamichuk. <laughs> I'm not going down with your ship. I just thought a lot of these people need, should be in Artist Alley, and if they can make it there, then they should have the location up oh, on the Oh, you're talking floor. about by, by space. So, like, they have fine, their art is fine, but they don't need the space. Well, the for art is fine, but there's feet. not much of it. Like, there's definitely have not built up the portfolio. Like, they couldn't fill out their table. Like, a right. lot of the space was wasted. A lot of, like, they, they probably needed a four foot space for the amount of work they had done. So they can, bought they bought that prime location. There is absolutely no way they made the money back. They just had the money to get it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Money always wins. Money what, always what wins. Um, do you think that if those people come back next year to the same space, you'll see an improvement? I'd like to hope so. I hope that it's not just that they have deep pockets. It's that they worked harder to, to fill that space out. Interesting. Okay, well, if we're talking big versus small, let's let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit for the dear listener that is thinking, okay, I want to exhibit at a big show. What's it cost to do that? What kind of show? Like, are we talking, let's talk about Canadian shows. So, okay, let's compare like a show like Winnipeg. Winnipeg? Yeah. I believe an artist alley table, which is eight feet, which is normally, the normal artist alley tables almost everywhere else in the world are six feet. Winnipeg has eight-foot tables, which I always thought was the best thing ever. When you're used to six-feet tables and you get an eight-foot table, it's like Christmas. Yeah. Um, Makes a big difference. And I believe they're going around $250 for... For an artist alley table. For an artist alley table. I think someone got two to $300. Canadian. We hear so much whining about that, and it's probably the cheapest artist alley table in Canada. Yeah, probably true. So so right there, you got $300 in. And then you got to do some printing. Yeah. How much printing? What should your budget of printing your, on a first show? You've spent $300 show. on a table. Well, okay. I and think you have, my... F- you have 10 pieces of art. So you probably want to print those pieces. Our kind of rule of thumb for a new piece, you really don't know if it's going to sell or not. And if you're starting out, a good rule of thumb is to print... Uh, Print the right number. Print the right number. So if you sell one or two, it basically makes up your cost. Covers the cost per unit. Yeah. yeah so you're production. not like you only have to move a small percentage of those to make up your cost. Don't go overboard just in case it doesn't catch on and then you're stuck with a bunch of stock and you've lost yeah. a little bit of money. But even even lukewarm pieces, we can move a couple and that usually makes up the printing cost. And then we know we need to go back and print more. Right. And so costs you want to think about if you're traveling to a show then for your art that you're printing. Let's say you have 10 pieces and you want to print 20 of them each. You have to think about what it costs you to ship that work to where you're going, right? 
figure out what your cost per unit is, divide the total cost of printing, the total cost of tabling, and the total cost of getting there. Well, when you're starting the... off, you should be driving or doing your local shows. Right. Though, yeah, that's but... a conversation for once you've established that you can make a profit. Right. In your own, in your backyard. So all those things will give you a cost per unit if you stack them all up and then divide them by the number of things you have to sell. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be realistic with yourself based on the traffic and the likely interest. Um, While it is true that fan art sells faster than originals, if an original has a style that is very accessible, it can also move just as quickly as a piece of fan art. You know, I... My portfolio is 80% original work and 20% fan art. And that original work also has a long tail of the comet. The original work I have on the table is what is attracting publishers and comic collaborators to the table, right? They see that I am producing original content and they also want to produce original content. So you want to have in your portfolio or in your body of work, more of the work you want to do. So if you love doing fan art, do fan art. I'm not the fan art police. Um, If you want to do original content and you only ever want to do original content, Make sure you have lots of it on your table because that's the conversation you're hoping to have, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Have there been any moments when you have arrived at a show of that magnitude where you look up at the activations, they're called? That's those big displays with like a 20-foot hulk and a you know silver surfer swinging down from the ceiling or whatever, where you've thought should I do this <laughs> or is this just being a, like a braggart? Like, should we like make... how big is too big for oh. a booth setup? Well, I think as big as you can manage, right? Like we, hmm. like I noticed that, uh, like at this show I had, I had a 10 by 20, which is by far the most amount of space I had at New York comic-con. And I thought I'd brought enough for a proper back display, but it, as it turned out, I didn't quite bring enough stands to do the proper job that I wanted to do. Yeah, do you want to tell the listeners what I said about your setup once I saw it? Gregory was a little disappointed in my setup. Yeah, I said which it, which it, stung a bit. I don't think you've ever. When was the never, last time you've been never, disappointed? Yeah. Never, I haven't been disappointed in a long time uh, for your setup. But it was it felt by comparison of how you normally curate your booth space felt a little bit shabby. And that's just unexperienced with that type of space it was a longer it was a it was a big l and i'm used to having kind of two tables on a corner and i know how to fill that out really well because i've had that kind of spot for years and i've like perfected my setup i wonder if it's karmic like had you seen those people at those corner booths and thought you guys don't deserve that and then as a result your own table setup suffered yeah (laughs) the great universe put its thumb on you maybe well i think that's it's part of the learning curve i've now that I've had that table, I know exactly what I needed to have done. Yeah. And for next year, it's going to be... And so I'll quantify that for the listener. When I said shabby, what I mean by that is that if a booth setup uh, has a footprint that large, I want to be able to see what is for sale at that booth from any of the aisles that pass it. Like that's sort of my criteria. That if you've spent the money and had the foresight to have that big plan... Make sure that all the traffic can see you because it's not just the sales that you want on the show floor. It's also that there are these thousands of people cruising past you and why not expose your brand and your art to them at the same time. Um, And normally you do that. You have this great kind of um, half you built up that you do so that 
from any approach you can see the chasing artwork amazing shatters but in mm -hmm. this one it was like from two angles you were sort of invisible it didn't hurt your sales at all but it's still to me i was like oh, i don't know justin's slipping i needed some more curves and like usually yeah my backstand is kind of it has some curves in it. it's like a u-shape and in this show the only way i could really cover up my entire backstand is to have it mostly as a straight line i i really would have liked to do something different but i did i couldn't bring enough of my backdrop photography stand to do a proper right. job and now i know that for next year and it's going to be a very different looking setup next year but uh luckily um it didn't really hurt me right it, yeah okay so let's other be... than your opinion there was no downside <laughs> <laughs> when we are drawn into the burning orbit of the sun our planet will explode like a giant bubble so i had an experience Oh, yeah, let's show. talk about your setup. Yeah, let's talk <laughs> about Gregory. Um, I was there to promote Apocrypha, the new baby metal graphic novel. And the show, New York Comic Con, tried an experiment to do a New York con uh, anime show 20 blocks from the it New York Comic Con. 20 blocks. It felt like 20 blocks away. <laughs> and almost a different part of the city there was so to its yeah. credit the show setup at uh, the anime show floor setup was great layout was good the way that they wanted traffic to flow to and fro they had lots of activations there was places to chill out there was like it was it had all the makings of a really great anime show but it did not have think, the traffic well, like one of the core ideas here was uh the javits center is a huge building and it used to have kind of almost a side hall where the artist alley was this big huge almost uh connected building to it that is currently demolished and they are building a new one so i think the idea is they eventually want this whole anime um convention to be Across in that street. new building yeah but they don't have that building yet, so instead of just not having it yet, they put it, yeah, a 20, 30-minute walk yeah, away. Yeah, so it was like a first-time show is sort of what it felt like for that organizer. Um, and I mean, we did fine there because we had a very lovely and dedicated fan base that showed up to our Baby Metal panel and to talk about the graphic novel, and we had some limited edition prints for that book, and that was all amazing but once we were done the thursday friday it became clear to me that if all that other great stuff that i love about new york comic-con was going to happen to me i had to get my butt into the javits center and to z2's credit they completely agreed and they said well just move your setup to our other spot they had two tables they had a spot in the anime show and a spot in the javits center and they said just move your setup to the other side no problem so that was really you know, generous and wonderful. And so once I was there, I had a surreal moment of being at the table that I had been across from the previous year or previous two years um, and saw it all from the other side. I also saw some other big versus small moments at the show. Lots of people bringing pitches to those publishers. Because you were at a publishing table. I was at a publisher's so. table and I have not been at one in a while i'm usually have my own setup so i was able to see people's nervous first attempts at handing over their portfolios or their reviews or any of that and there was a lot of them that um you know they were trying really hard but the one that stands out as being really i thought clever and i thought this is something i could do this is something i could learn from somebody handed in a project pitch 
um, and included in it was their portfolio. And in their portfolio, which had sort of three varying art styles, like they had hit different notes, often you hear that you don't want to have too much range in your portfolio. You want to be looked at and known for one thing, yeah. right? If you're really good at, like in my case, like doing pulp era stuff, keep stick to that in your portfolio. Yeah. Pitch that thing. This had three different very varying styles, but each of the uh, chapter breaks of this portfolio included the art direction notes that they had received from the art director of the publisher they had worked on. Mm. And so you as a publisher could read the art direction that was given and then see the result of that art direction. And I thought that was a beautiful bridging technique against the conventional wisdom of portfolios to show a variety of work, but also say like the reason there's a variety is I can do a variety if I'm asked, right? Their pitch contained what they wanted to be doing, but they were also showing some range so that if the publisher said, you know, not your book, but do you want to work on one of ours? There was, it was that was really clever. So Very versatile. that's a pro tip I'd say. I'm going to steal, so all of you should too, dear listeners. <laughs> um, especially now that I'm working on lots of ranging projects. I'm doing all-ages books, and I'm doing horror books, and I'm doing sci-fi stuff, and we did this mythology book with Apocrypha. You know, I have a style, but I also have a bit of a range, and it can be, I think, a little bit Byzantine for the uh, agent or publisher or talent person to look through it and try to figure it out. Um I also had a few moments where people who were buying prints or books from me, I didn't know who they were until after they gave me their card. And that's always the best scenario. Which is also why you treat everybody nicely. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Don't have a big head because you might be talking to somebody from Warner Brothers or Marvel because they usually don't walk around with big badges that say, like, I'm a big deal. Right. They go around looking like normal people. And then depending on how the conversation goes... That's one of the last things they drop is, oh, by the way, I'm from Warner Brothers. Can I have a card? Right. Which is one of the conversations that happened to me this weekend. So a couple of licensee, like a couple of license holders were really interested in me working on some of their projects. A uh, kind of a big deal publisher who I obviously can't name until after the meeting invited me down to LA to come and sit down. I guess that narrows the field uh, <laughs> to sit down and talk about a possible project, which is right now a follow-up to midnight city, which I'm working on a world war weird book. And they really, really liked midnight city. They thought it was really kind of out there. They were able to look at the first, they got to look at some of the first printing copies of Apocrypha and, because there's a number of years between Midnight City and Apocrypha, and my work has grown quite a bit. So I, I wanted to show them, you know, like the direction that they saw. I can do better. Here's where, yeah, well, <laughs> you kind of, yeah. It's like, Dad, Dad, here's my report card. Yeah. Right? Um, and so between that space, I also said, you know, I've been working on this other project. And they asked if I had a publisher attached. I said, no. They said, well, you know, maybe you'd like to. Maybe we'd like to. Um, and they specifically, one person asked me in another conversation how are you in a room right they asked oh. if i had an agent right and i said that i did not have an agent and they said how are you in the room like if i put you in front of some people are you gonna like the guy literally looked at me are you gonna break down and freak out or can you <laughs> handle yourself in a room and i was like no I, I think i can handle the room and he's like okay then here's my card right because <laughs> okay. i won't normally only deal with people who have representation 
people skills. Yeah. And what was an interesting <laughs> follow-up to that conversation was that he wasn't saying that people who didn't have agents, he didn't want to work with. He was saying that if I have to put you in the room with somebody, an agent knows how to conduct themselves because that's their job. Right. And an artist and writer maybe is good at something, but being in that room maybe isn't they're not the best person for that job for sure um so i immediately thought if i should send sam in my place right but uh i think i can do it so those are like interesting things and it sounds like to the 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 person who is maybe first thinking about exhibiting at a show wow i hope all that stuff happens to me but there's a there's a flip side to it you know i have 25 prospective clients and or publishers and or relationships that I now have to follow up on in a timely fashion and there's only so much time in the day and there's only so much time I want to take away from my creative time and we leave Friday for Vancouver Fan Expo yes we do so I had to organize them I organized them in ABCs right sort of like if this person said yes to everything and I just quantified it as if this person said yes to whatever I pitched them who would I want the yes to be and I organized the list that way and then that same day, I followed up on all my A's so that I did not, I had not left it and could not leave it. Because you've put in the groundwork and you are in the position now where you can kind of pick and choose your projects, which is kind of where that's the goal, right? That you want to get to the position where you don't have to say yes to everything. You can say yes to the project that fits you Best. Well, let's not misconstrue it to the dear listener that somehow, like, you know, we're just in a gilded cage up here in Winnipeg. It's more that I have enough projects right now for the next year or so that if I wanted to only work on those, I could probably sustain my life and my family's grocery bills along that way. And so it's given me some comfort to then, like you say, turn down projects that aren't the right fit. Right. I have the basics covered right now. And once you have the basics covered, you have some freedom. And so, boys and girls, be super citizens and have a super future by saving regularly with United States saving stamps at school. Now, you, on the other hand, right, work in a reverse. You use your art to build up capital to then print your books yourself, which is like a whole other side of things. If we're talking about flipping that over, if you're someone that says, you know, publishers won't do it the way I want them to. And you know that there's a demand, which is definitely exhibited by your work. How do you take the reverse approach of art pays for books? Because books are not as lucrative. They're not. Why so, are you doing it? Why are you throwing your money away, you well, madman? <laughs> I re when I originally started Comic-Cons, I, I wasn't really thinking about doing books yet because I'd done a book or two with other people and it didn't really make me much money it was a ton of work and i was kind of disenchanted with the book making publishing world. you didn't have a lot of fun didn't have a lot of fun no i wasn't drawing what i wanted wasn't drawing it the way i wanted um and then when the books came out that like no money really came my way kind of like i just thought it, it felt like a bit of a dead end just in my limited experience and then i started doing prints at comic cons and for those of us who do it we know the margins and the profit on prints can be really, really great. And so I slowly started to see that. And then I started to really reap the benefits of being a print artist. And it kind of gave me the freedom to um, kind of slow down on freelance and start pouring all my efforts into what I wanted to do because I had 
a market for it. I knew where it was going and I knew how much money it could make me. Let's just quantify that a little bit for okay. people. So imagine, so dear listener, if you have a 40 hour work day, right, you know what your labor is worth and uh, it's usually you're never paid what you're worth anyway. It doesn't <laughs> matter what the field is, right? But everyone has that same amount of hours. So what Justin is talking about is a way in which he can labor 40 hours a week, every week, and then arrive at a show and be paid a living wage for that time, right? This is an essential thing. And you know, everyone's living wage is a different sliding scale. So you have to figure out what yours is. You have to know what your costs are. But this is what he's talking about is that you can go and make the, make the pay that you'd normally would have been paid for all those hours. It's really tricky though, because you're not being paid while you're in the studio working. You're gambling yeah. that people will like it. So you're taking risk there. And that, uh, yeah, I kind of took that risk for, well, it was kind of years of building up to a certain threshold. Like I was still working a, a full-time job as a, a concept artist and interface designer. I was still doing a lot of freelance. And this kind of side hustle was, was a slow build into the main hustle. And once it became the main hustle, then I'd had enough confidence and enough success with my own work to kind of realize why, why do I need to do a book with somebody else? I can just do a book myself. I can fund it myself through um, the, the Comic-Con profits. And now the, the kind of big thing was like, well, I can just bring it to shows and sell it there. Why do I even need to go to bookstores? Right. And so that's kind of how Cassie and Tonk came about was I never really even thought about trying to get a publisher on it. I just knew that if I printed printed a book and brought it to shows, people would, people would buy it there. And even if they bought uh, a small chunk of it, because all the profit was coming back my way, um, I could make my money back a lot faster than... Yeah, no distributor, no yeah. publisher. Which no we've talked about a lot, yeah. but it's it was a very long build to get to that point. So I don't want to make it seem like that was an easy... Right, yeah. Because answer. if someone's listening to this, they're like, oh, okay, so I should print some prints, then I'll make a ton of money and then I can print my own book. And then keep in mind that this is Justin's 10 year anniversary <laughs> at C4 Comic-Con this year. Mine as well. We're both 10 years in the local show and we've been building up a little at a time over that time. It's roughly the equivalent of the amount of time you'd put into becoming a doctor, right? And at the end of that, hopefully you have a job. Well, at the end of it, now we have our job. We've been interning in our own lives for 10 years and now we get to do it. So from your perspective, because you kind of, you came in this kind of the opposite of me, you, you did the, the traditional publishing route and you're still doing it to some degree, but you also have kind of come over to my model for the self-publishing hitting Comic-Cons route. How, how has that been working out for you? How do you, if, if somebody's starting out do you have advice as far as should they really be going for a publisher right off the bat or should they do a small self-published project and try what we're doing? What so do you I, think? Yeah, I guess my advice, you know, retrospect is always such a perfect description of your own sounds life. So right? Sounds so perfect. When you look at your life in retrospect, you can say that this led to that and this other thing. But when you're in it, you don't really know. So I guess my advice is if you're making comics, in particular, you probably have a comic that you've made yourself. And you probably have a book that you want to do that's bigger than the one you've made for yourself. So you're hoping a publisher will undertake that. 
uh, mileage may vary on this advice, but I strongly feel that you should seek out a publisher for your first book or second book that is small and that make that book also a small commitment. So small in comics could be, you know, a 48 page book or a 64 page book. Don't offer a small press that you might get published in a 300 page epic because they won't be able to afford the page rate and you'll probably work on a percentage of the back end. And so if you have set yourself up this 300 page monster, you, the likelihood that you'll deliver it and the likelihood that you'll be happy with the results of that small press. And that they'll low. pick it up even. Right. We, we had a conversation with uh, somebody who looked at pitches all the time and he said something that reinforced something that I've always been thinking about. Um, think of your, your first story as like a Pixar short or yeah. like one oh, of those man, little short advice. stories yeah. on that you see on Vimeo or YouTube that more and more often we're seeing like it was a five to seven minute small team project that now has been greenlit into a huge blockbuster right. movie based on that. Yeah, and he this short uh, idea. This individual used to work on. Uh, we'll you know we'll leave everybody's names out of it. They didn't ask to be have their advice shared on this podcast. Um, but the the notion here was that they saw lots of pitches, and part of their job description was sorting them right between what works and what doesn't but i'll also say coming back to that original question if you give a small book to a small publisher and it gets out into the world that is your greatest business card ever right you have an isbn number your book is on amazon your book is live on the website you know google reads is looking at stuff now you exist when someone looks for you that's huge that's value added when you're starting out then what you do is you finish private personal project at the same time so that when people notice the one book and they come to find you you have the other book that is completely yours to show them and share with them and your infectious um, passion for that project will very likely have that next publisher that next interest level say well what else do you have so my sort of trifecta here is you need a book with the publisher a book you've done yourself and a book that's in development whenever you go to a show, right? So that if you have that opportunity, you have something to show them. Yeah. If you don't have that opportunity, you have a reason to be there in that you're learning now. So if you have a book in development and nobody's interested in your other two things, you're at a place with 250, maybe 500 professional artists and writers. Walk around that show and learn everything you can about what to do next in your project. You know, that's, I guess. There's a, yeah, there's a wealth of knowledge. How, like how many random publishing and just being an artist questions do we get per show, per day? Constantly, yeah. And you know, what's funny is sometimes now when I get asked one at a show, that's a really great question. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, I wish I knew the answer to that. Like I'll give my answer, but then I'll think, well, I wish I knew the answer to that question from that guy over there. And I'll take that question <laughs> and I'll go and ask it. Why can I do things that nobody else can do? Why can I run faster, jump higher? Why am I stronger than anybody? I uh, was speaking with Anthony Delcole. He's uh, uh, one half of Kill Shakespeare, but he also has a new book out right now called Son of Hitler, yeah. which is doing really well. But he's also in the um, audiobook space now, doing uh, 
what can only be described as like dramatic podcast development, like so scripted podcast content that can also be sold in the audiobook space. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I might be miscategorizing this, but it sounded like his newest one was like one a top one or two place in the UK world of that uh, audio drama development space. Wow. And it was really, he was really surprised, right? Not because he didn't work hard, but because, wow, you know, this is a thing that people want. And I was like, you know, does it feel weird to do that instead of comics? And he said, no, man, I just want to tell, like, I just want to tell stories. Like, I have lots of stories. Give me a way to tell stories and I will go for it. Not to be a one-trick pony. Yeah. And so if you're a writer out there who's trying comics, recognize that if you can write well and you can write well in a script format, you can probably write pretty well for all kinds of different things. Um, I ended up doing a few episodes on a television series that was uh, being, well, developed, shot, produced here in winnipeg it was a docudrama i don't think it's out yet but you could probably look for its um mysterious history (laughs) i think it's called i knew my killer and um i got the gig because someone heard from someone that you know he can work fast and it's at least pretty good Right. This was, it wasn't like, here's this genius. It was, hey, I got this phone call from the TV producer that said, I've heard that you can do pretty good work really fast. Um, and I was like, I don't know if this is an underhanded compliment or what's <laughs> happening. And she explained that we only needed to be pretty good at the beginning because you're doing first drafts. You're doing the first right. Right. Someone else who has way more experience in the space, way more TV experience is going to rewrite your first draft into something that works better. So here's the formula, here's the style guide for the show, here's the content. You're gonna take a run at the first bit, you're gonna do the hard work, and you're gonna let, we're gonna let the finesse work be somebody else because we're on a really tight deadline. So being able to work in comics, let me say yes to a project that I would never otherwise have had access to. And I didn't go looking for that, I didn't really seek it out, it just came about because I had a reputation for getting for finishing things yeah. whether they were good or bad they were finished and sometimes in that finished world, is better than perfect that's right yeah. yeah forget where we heard that but it's a good one yeah i wonder i wonder if maybe <laughs> maybe that person is around somewhere sam is glaring at us from across the room that's right um yeah big sigh <laughs> we'll have to fully that in later that big sigh from across the room yeah that kind of goes back to that attracting that publisher getting that first book done when I first started thinking about Cassie and Tonk, I'd actually kind of pitched you, Gregory, on the idea, but I didn't have anything other than the idea. And I was kind of, I remember that email going unanswered or being answered with a bit of indifference because I think you were, back then you were you were the guy known as getting things done in the bookland, and you probably had a lot of people emailing you with, hey, ideas, like, help me with it. Yeah, and you were like, how dare you, sir, not <laughs> respond to me. But then I kind of went back to the grindstone, and I got a lot of things figured out, and I storyboarded, and I got some concept art done, and I got a 3D artist involved in the project. And around that time, I think I'd kind of proven to you, the the Winnipeg publisher, that this was actually going to get finished. This wasn't just an idea. Oh, yeah, man, because so many people have ideas, Everybody's but not very ideas. many people act on them. And so whenever somebody comes to me with an idea and they have a whole bunch of work to go with it, yeah. man, I want to listen. When they come with an idea 
and a crooked hat. And that is all they have. Usually your first question is, what have you finished? Like what, yeah. what other publications have you done? What other books? What sequential artwork do you have right. to back up this idea? Yeah. And nine times out of 10, unfortunately, the answer is nothing yet. Yeah. And so I say, come back when you have something. Yeah. And, you know, you came back with a whole bunch of stuff, um, which was better than anything I could have come up with. So I was like, I'd better hitch, my, hitch myself to this wagon as quick <laughs> as I can. Right. Um, I've been long suffering ever since. <laughs> ever since. So we've talked about a lot of different stuff here today about big versus small, that you feel small in a big, big world, um, and your ideas feel big in a small world, but you have to try and figure out some middle ground between those two things. Any, uh, any rec- recommendations for people visiting New York? Did you have some good food this weekend? I did have some good food, um, but I also got to see... Uh, I got to be front row and center at the Eminem um, new music video that was being filmed. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, where it was at the Empire State Building, and I thought that something horrible was happening because all these helicopters were buzzing super close to the Empire State Building, and there was all spotlights from them that looked like they were on a person, right, way up on the platform and just helicopters and then it looked like news helicopters too and i was just you know if if you happen to be following me on instagram then you would have seen me saying things like i don't know what's going on but i guess i'm right here for it (laughs) um and it turned out not to be anything terribly bad i looked it up on you know if you're on twitter you can pretty much find what news is breaking and it was mostly people complaining about how um eminem had applied for a variance and paid for a variance so that the helicopters could buzz around this thing all night. But they're like, I just have to work in the morning. I don't care that you have to make a video. Can you please make the helicopters <laughs> go away? So it went from, oh no, something's happening to, hey, something's happening to, oh, they're not happy that this is happening. Um, never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. We also nearly plummeted to our death. Remember that? No. Th- the 13th floor? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell them about that? Uh, our hotel was quite nice. It was, uh, like right in the middle of, you know, Manhattan close to the Javits center, which is kind of the only criteria that we need is that there's no visible bugs and that it's walking distance to the show. Uh, cause the last thing you want to do is have to worry about like public transit or driving to a show first thing in the morning before you have to, yeah, put in all that work. Um, one of the elevators, we were on the 18th floor. And it uh, decided to go to the 13th floor really quick and stay on the 13th floor for a solid 30 seconds. We dropped fast enough that Justin and I had time to look at each other and be like, oh, is this the end? (laughs) And then stopped suddenly enough that, you know, if I had been a older gentleman, I probably would have just fallen right over. Like it was a quite a, like the brakes locked up and then it stayed and we were on the 13th floor. And we were looking at each other like, this is how, this is how horror movies start, <laughs> right? If these doors open, I'm not getting out. And then it just, <laughs> bing, and then it carried us down to the first floor. And we went to talk to, what was his name? Jim? Jim. Like, uh, it was a name It like was like that. a three-letter, Pat? Was Pat, it Pat? Pat or Jim at the <laughs> front desk. He was great. He was great. And I said, you know, I don't want to alarm anyone, but I think maybe your elevator needs some checking. And he goes, oh, did it fall really fast and then stop on the 13th floor? (laughs) (laughs) That happens all the time. That's just the ghost of the spectral bride. Yeah, that is. Uh, So that's our New York story. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Super Pulp Science. 
where we talk about how genre gets made. Um, don't feel small. Your ideas are big. Join the fight and make comments. Mm -hmm.